So following Jesus in the real world, that's what I've titled this sermon series as we walk through 1 Corinthians together. In the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and we learn from observing Jesus how he prayed, how he led, how he served, how he trusted the Father in everything. We learn some of the things he taught, and we see the early stages of faith as his disciples learn somewhat of what it means to follow Jesus. But it's not until Jesus ascends to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit who then fills those first disciples that the church is born. How would the gospel message of Jesus, which started with the Jewish Messiah in Israel, how would that translate to different cultures and languages? How would it play out amongst people with different worldviews and different economies. For all the things that Jesus taught us, there's so many specifics he left untouched. How do we form Christian ethics? How do we get from the Gospels to following Jesus in our world in Bellingham in the 21st century? Jesus never taught us a thing about bioethics. He never gave us a stance on the legalization of marijuana, or what type of government we should have. So written just 20 years after Jesus ascended and the church began spreading, 1 Corinthians is a letter that sheds much light on how to think as a disciple in a world that's constantly changing and shifting. I think it's a very relevant theme then for for us here in our time as well. So last week, we explored 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. And in that passage, Paul had heard that the Corinthians were arguing among themselves about which human leader they were pledging allegiance to. Some were attracted to this guy named Apollos, who was a silky smooth communicator and evangelist and teacher. Others expressed their devotion to Peter, the the famous apostle. Presumably, they were devoted to his, his, his writings. And still others paid attention to Paul and made him their man. And a fourth group said, well, actually, we're the only ones who are are following Jesus correctly. Paul addresses this problem by reminding them that, hey, those of you who are claiming me as your special guy, I never died for you. And those of you who are championing Apollos, uh, he never rose from the grave. And those of you who are claiming Peter for yourselves, you weren't ever baptized into Peter's name. Place your allegiance in Christ. He's the only one who is God incarnate. He's the only one of all of these other people you're championing. He's the only one who can take away all your sin. He's the only one who actually did that by dying for you and rising from the grave and sending his spirit that we could be the new people of God, the church. So we pick up the letter now in this same line of argument, but Paul is going to take it one step deeper. And I encourage you to stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians 1. Technically, we're in 18 through 25, but I'm just going to reach back one verse because this is all one big argument, right? So I'm going to start in verse 17. Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, 
and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its, its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Lord, this is a difficult, difficult message for, I suspect, anybody in any time, but particularly us as well. Lord, you know that we are taught since we are little to be independent, to be strong, assertive, self-sufficient. And the things that we have come to put our, our faith in, the solid material things of this world, pale in comparison to the good news of Jesus. And so we're praying for a miracle tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our hearts and minds to help this message seep in and go beyond our thinking, but into how we actually feel and perceive the world. Make us new creations tonight. Amen. You may be seated. Preaching and Bible studies where we take little sections are important. It helps us to, to dive deep, but it's, it's also a weird thing that we do because you know, it's been a week since I last spoke to you about 1 Corinthians 1, uh, but it's only a comma away from, uh, from where we are. So this is one concise argument that Paul is, is running on here, all the way to verse 4, um, chapter 4, verse 21. Our context is flowing directly out of last week. So as I mentioned earlier, the presenting issue that Paul is confronting was one of misplaced allegiance. The Corinthians were seeking human representatives to be their focus uh, of the gospel rather than Jesus himself. Now, we have the same issue uh, historically in the church. I mean, there's those who say, well, I follow Calvin, or I follow Luther. And some claim, well, I go way back before those guys. I claim the desert fathers and mothers. And everybody from every stripe of Christianity pulls quotes from Augustine and C.S. Lewis like they're their own homeboys. I mean, everybody does that. So everybody's kind of in these little camps. Why is it so common that we divide into camps around great human leaders and thinkers? Why do we rally around the intelligent and successful, those who start movements and publish lots of books? I think it's for the same reason that the Corinthians idolized Apollos and Peter and Paul. And here's the reason. The gospel of Jesus, the plain gospel of Jesus, is offensive. It's scandalous. It's basic. It's non-elitist. It is unexpected. It is unspectacular if judged by the, the world's definition of spectacular. And our culture, just like the Corinthians culture, lusts after fame and power and prestige. So from the perspective of the Corinthian church, the gospel of Jesus had a serious PR problem, a public relations problem. If Paul had hired a public relations consultant 
to help him communicate the gospel to Corinthians. I wonder what that would look like. Hopefully he would get someone better than Tom Brady and, and Bill Belichick got for Deflategate, right? Sorry, Jeff Caldwell, that was for you. I mean, he would have to hire a real culturally savvy consultant who would help him communicate the gospel in a way that could reach the Corinthians, right? So I, I was imagining this whole scene, having a little bit of fun with it, so I made a dialogue that I'm going to do all myself. Corey doesn't even know this. Be embarrassed, honey. All right, so I'm not even going to do the voices really well, but okay, so this is the consultant. So come on into my office. Uh, what do you go by, saint or apostle or something? Oh, just Paul. All right, just Paul, what can I do for you today? Well, I'm trying to communicate the good news of Jesus to these people in Corinth. Great, great. I'm an expert in Corinthian culture and customs. They're a lively group, these Corinthians, always willing to listen to a new teacher, especially willing to hear news about someone great. So tell me, who is this Jesus? Well, Paul might say, he was a Jew from, from Nazareth. <laughs> wait, wait, what? A Jew, you say? Did he have any Roman or Greek blood on his mother's side or his father's side? It's going to be tough to sell a Jewish guy in Corinth. Well, his father was God. Whoa, now we're getting somewhere. Really? Which one? Well, the living God, the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. Ah, you're going for shock value. I like it. That sells. So tell me, what did this Jesus teach? What did he do that we can use to hook the crowd? Well, his teaching was amazing, and he performed many miracles. Oh, good stuff. We can work with that. Now, what's even more important than what he taught is how many followers he had and how he died. To be a great man, he must have had an army, and he must have died a heroic death in battle, right? Actually, most of his followers, the few that he actually had, abandoned him when he was crucified. The consultant's jaw at this point drops. Literally, his quill falls over, the ink spills on his papyrus notepad. Then he gets out a nervous chuckle, and then a belly laugh crucified oh that's a good one that's a good one you want me to help you market a jewish messiah who had a handful of followers who died on a cross you want me to help you market the enemy of the empire do you realize corinth is a colony of rome listen if you want my advice you lose the jewish thing and the cross part play up the fact that he's a king from from the east something exotic who offered eternal spiritual life and escape from all this, that'll sell. Heck, I'd buy into that. Anything that can get us away from the misery and pain of this life. And then Paul might say something like this. Well, actually, Jesus does offer new life, but he promises resurrection of the body and recreation of this creation. The gospel's not about escape. See, it's about more real life, more human life than we've ever experienced before. Well, nobody is going to be into that. But if you want to have any chance at getting their attention, you're going to have to be the best public speaker on the Isthmus. Now, good day. I can't help you with this. <laughs> oh, the double, ba double debut today with the bass guitar. All right, so PR, <laughs> PR consultants work within the values of the world. The Corinthians value power and fame 
and popularity and in leadership in particular, the Corinthians valued rhetoric, the ability to communicate on any topic with a silky smooth tongue. And last week we looked at this group called the Sophists, um, speakers of rhetoric who were known for their fluency of tongue and their smithing of words. They could speak about any subject known to man, uh, well known to them at least, um, I don't know what they would talk about for computer processors or something, but they could, they could just stand up there and have something eloquent to say about almost any subject. And to the public, their presentation was more important than their proclamation. Their, uh, their medium was exalted over their message. They could speak hot air on about anything. Paul, as he comes into Corinth, recognizes this popular sophist culture, and he chooses intentionally not to be another talking head. It's not that Paul can't speak well. It's that he chooses not to make the gospel just one more message amongst all of these competing messages by these bags of hot air. And just an aside, when Paul says, I preach Christ and Christ crucified, right? That's, what, that's his big thing. I didn't come in with fancy talk. I just preached Christ and Christ crucified. Don't get it into your head that Paul comes into town, however he comes. He probably doesn't walk like that. I wouldn't either. But anyway, he doesn't come into town and say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. He was a Jewish guy who was crucified. Okay, anyone who wants to believe and join my church, sign up here. That when it says that I preach Christ and Christ crucified, that is shorthand for a lot more. And here's what it is. Preaching the gospel was nothing short of telling the story of God from creation to new creation. The gospel for Paul was the story of how God became king in Jesus. How the creator gave himself in death on a cross to rescue all of us who are on our way to death in the first place. The gospel of Christ and Christ crucified is the story of how Jesus rose from the dead, defeating the evil one and nullifying the greatest weapon that any evil empire could ever have, death itself. It's the story of how Jesus now reigns and has sent his spirit into those of us who believe. And it is the story of how those spirit-filled believers are called the new people of God, otherwise known as the church. People called out, filled with the life of God, to reflect God's goodness to the world. People who are willing to sacrifice all because life, they have life and hope in a resurrection, a new world. That is the message that Paul has in mind when he uses the shorthand term of preaching the gospel or preaching Christ and Christ crucified. Now this message of Paul's, the message of Jesus, to the ears and minds of the Corinthians was utter foolishness. In a world that exalted the human mind in pursuit of wisdom from a human point of view, the gospel was ridiculous. No one would make up a story like this. Just look at the gods of the Greek and Roman mythologies. They're divine beings who are basically made in the image of people. They're spiteful and vindictive. They seek after vainglory. They're exempt from following any of the kinds of morals and ethics that people are. They are reflections of our own lust and anger and desire for power. The Greek gods 
and Roman gods and goddesses are who we would be if we could get away with it. Who would invent, then, a story about a god whose creation turns against him? You know what a Greek god would do if the creation turned against him? Spite them. Kill them. Show them who's boss. Who would write a story about a god who creates all these beings who rebel against him, and then instead of squashing them like bugs, decides to rescue them? Absolutely, grace, that word that we embrace in the church, is a repulsive word in the Greco-Roman world. And in a world that looked at the human body as a trap and longed for escape from the physical world, who would dream up a God that becomes a human being and then dies and then, okay, so then he rises, he's going to be a spirit, right? No, he rises into a resurrected what? Body. A body. What kind of salvation is it that you are going to have a resurrected body? Absolute foolishness to the Greeks. And it is foolishness if we don't believe. But for those who have placed faith in Jesus, the gospel is not something to be ashamed of like Meg read earlier from Romans 1. It's the power of God himself unto salvation. Paul quotes Isaiah, uh, who speaks as a prophet of God in, in this passage we're covering. It's he, he writes, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside, or I will obscure, or I will hide. See, in Isaiah, God is addressing the Israelites who had been honoring him with their lips, going to their worship services, doing their festivals, but their hearts were hard against him. They were dependent on their own wisdom, on their own abilities, on their own righteousness. The word for that I like to use is functional atheism. We go to worship, we sing our songs, we pray our prayers, but when it comes down to it, all the decisions we're making don't really include God, especially if scripture or God's will has anything counter with what we actually want. Any wisdom we think we have outside of God is a path that leads to death. And Paul knows this. The wise men of the world, the scribes who are the Jewish religious experts, and the great sophists, the masters of rhetoric of the age, where are they actually without God? Nowhere. Dead. Obscure. Where is the great empire that Paul was preaching into, the Roman Empire? Long gone. So was the glory of ancient Greece. You know, even in the Renaissance, the Renaissance is a coming back to the glories of ancient Greece and Rome, the architecture, the government, all of these things are, are reaching back to these bygone eras. Greek and Roman mythology is taught to fifth graders in textbooks as stories of what once were. No one actually follows those things anymore. Empires organized around anyone or anything but Jesus are bound to fall because there's only one king and there's only one kingdom. So Paul says, the Greeks search for wisdom. They search to define their world by controlling it with knowledge. I can certainly identify with that. You probably can too, since at least my generation, since we were little kids, we've heard the mantra, knowledge is power, right? Schoolhouse rock. And Paul, listen, I, this is so important. Hear this. Paul is not against knowledge. In fact, 
he was an extremely well-educated man. He may have preached a simple gospel, but his written work reflects extremely well-organized rhetoric. In fact, scholars look at this passage, uh, actually 1 Corinthians 1.10 to 1 Corinthians 4.21, as a beautifully intricate piece of polished rhetoric. So what's, what's funny is Paul's spoken message is basic, just the gospel Christ crucified, because he doesn't want to come off like a sophist. But when he writes this letter to these complaining people in Corinth, they're reading this like, oh my word, this guy is sharp. And uh, actually, that the 1 Corinthians 1.10 to 4.21 can form a huge chiasm. It's this beautifully constructed, written rhetoric. So people are reading this response letter from from paul to the corinthians reading this like oh maybe we underestimated him his his, maybe he's not the best speaker but he is thinking well paul isn't against knowledge in many other places in the new testament paul urges us to use our minds as well as our hearts following jesus isn't just blind faith following jesus faithfully will mean thinking thinking about issues Science and art and economics and sociology and engineering and philosophy and medicine and ethics and politics. These are not inherently against the gospel, unless they are. These disciplines and forms of knowing should all be explored and utilized as long as they come under the authority of Jesus. So Paul isn't against wisdom. He's against the wisdom of people critiquing the gospel of Jesus. He says it's arrogance. It's the equivalent of the creation going to the creator, well, you made me wrong. Or the pot saying to the potter, you screwed me up. Arrogance. Now, in our day, we like to keep Jesus and religion nicely boxed up for church gatherings. I'm so glad you're here, by the way. And and maybe your personal prayer time, if, if you're doing that. But we like to keep Jesus out of the other spots of our life. Hot-button topics, private parts of our life. We, don't, we like to keep Jesus out of our sexual ethics. After all, worldly wisdom, reason, society, social wisdom tells us what happens in the bedroom should just stay in the bedroom. And what happens between two consenting adults shouldn't matter to anyone else. Old traditions, taboos of sex and marriage and celibacy and abstinence are outdated. It could be harmful to suppress these urges and desires. Or money. I give my 10%. Now get off my back, God. I earned this. It's my right to do whatever I want with my resources. Where scripture would would contradict that and say all of our resources are God's. Enjoy the good life. But when God gives us opportunities to share and be more generous than a simple law and the Bible commands, Aren't we to reflect our generous Father as well? The gospel is offensive to us because it challenges the wisdom of the world that is organized around selfishness and self-preservation. Now, the Greeks search for wisdom. Paul says that the Jews search for signs. We hear this kind of thing over and over again in the four gospels. Jesus will teach an amazing message. Crowds will say, I've never heard anyone teach this way. Or where does he get these words? Jesus will perform an amazing deed of power, casting out demons with the word, raising people from the dead, 
calming storms on the sea. And right afterward, right after he teaches these amazing things or does these amazing deeds, the religious leaders say, well, what sign will you show us as a proof that you're the Messiah? Why are they doing that? Because it became a popular belief amongst the Jewish teachers that the Messiah would do certain things to authenticate his reign. He would raise up an army. He would lead a revolt against foreign oppressors. He would be a lot more like Moses. They had preconceived uh, notions about what the Messiah would be like and should be like. But what they didn't realize was that in their midst, in Jesus, was something better than just the Messiah. Jesus was not only the Messiah, but he was something more, something people didn't expect. He was God in the flesh. So when he fed the 5,000, he was doing more than Moses had ever done. When Moses was in the desert, God fed the 5,000 with manna and quail. When Jesus was in the desert, he provided bread. It was probably really good bread, like bread farm bread. Ask any first century Jew, who provides bread in the desert? Even a child who's going through uh, the learning of the church or the, the synagogue. And they would tell you, the only one who provides bread in the desert is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Who does that make Jesus then? When Jesus calms the stormy sea by speaking two words, be still. The disciples say, who is this man that even the waves and the wind obey him? Indeed, who is this? Ask a first century Jew. Who is it that controls the weather, the sea, and the storms? None other than Yahweh himself, the one who made the sea and the wind. Who then is Jesus? See, in our day, we continue to look for signs. People buy books by the thousands about those who claim to have gone to heaven and meet Jesus, and they have all these extravagant experiences. A lot of, don't e a lot of them don't even line up with anything that Scripture says, and we gobble that stuff up. In fact, a little boy whose near-death experience is told in the book Heaven is for Real has recently recanted his whole story. But we'd rather believe a good sensational story than the revelation that God has actually given us. We want signs. We want life to go well. We gobble up books and seminars by the thousands who teach God's principles to health and wealth and satisfaction in life and really cheesy smiles. Tens of thousands of people attend these churches. We want signs. And all along, Paul is telling us the gospel is all you need. In fact, it's more than you need. What greater sign is there than Jesus in the flesh, crucified for you and me, raised from the dead, reigning as king, coming again to rescue and renew the face of the earth? You yourself received the sign of signs when you received the Holy Spirit, when you repented and were baptized. So why then, if the gospel is so powerful and so all-sufficient, why is it so offensive? Because we identify with our leaders. And the, the reality is that we have gathered here today to worship a God who was born in a manger to an unwed mother. A God who, even when he put on flesh and dwelt among us, you'd, thought, you'd think he could have been like 
the most important human ever if he was God. He never made it to high priest. He was never a professional scribe. He never ascended to a throne on earth. He washed his disciples' feet. He died a criminal's death on a cross. And from the Jews' perspective, he died an accursed man. Anyone who hung for their death was accursed in their view. That's why he's offensive to us. Recently, a French cartoonist foolishly made a satirical cartoon of the prophet Muhammad. The backlash from the, and I emphasize, radical Muslim community is still being felt. Bombing, shootings, anger, threats, and violence. Why? Because the honor of the prophet was damaged. And some people have taken it into their own hands to avenge the shaming. But notice that Jesus has been defamed for centuries. Jesus does not need avenging by human beings. He was vindicated by God himself when he rose from the dead and was placed as king over all of us. There's not a lot you can do to shame a God who chose to be humbled. A cartoon about Jesus is nothing compared to hanging naked on a cross. A defacing of a a statue of Jesus or burning of a Bible can't get under the skin of a Lord who changed his very existence from being part of the Godhead to actually becoming a human being. And he did all of that out of love for a people who were rebelling against him. He didn't wait for us to shape up before he came to us. That's the offense of the gospel. Following Jesus is not going to make you famous. Following Jesus won't give you prestige. It won't make us important in the eyes of the world. And by the world standards, following Jesus is probably going to be embarrassing. It requires us to admit our weakness and our sin in a world that sells billions of dollars of products trying to mask our ugliness, both exterior and interior. It requires us to, uh, to confess those things before the Lord. Following Jesus as Savior and Lord means that we need a Savior and that we are not Lord. In the eyes of the world organized around anyone or anything but God, the gospel is a PR nightmare. But for those with ears to hear and eyes to see, and sin to confess, and forgiveness to receive. For those of you who have abundant life in Christ, you want to live. The gospel is the very love of God, the very life of God made available to you. And that is a PR nightmare I am willing to embrace wholeheartedly. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I confess that the gospel, your good news, is a tough pill to swallow. But I am so thankful that you don't, um, you don't soft sell yourself. You give us the truth of what we actually need. And you offer us a solution. You don't just leave us with a couple teachings to follow. But you yourself became one of us, died for us, rose and reigned over us. Call us together in your spirit to be your church. You've not left us as orphans, but adopted us into your family. 
pray, Lord, during this coming up time of prayer for healing that you would, um, you would reveal to us, Holy Spirit, those places inside that we've shut you out from. Those areas that we are still gripping onto, trying to be Lord. Those areas that we desperately need your saving love and grace and mercy. We desperately need your forgiveness, but we just don't want to face them. Help us to embrace you, the scandal of the gospel, and the good news of forgiveness and new life. 